Hello and welcome to Cruisin' for a Reviewsin', the podcast where I get a friend to watch a Tom Cruise movie they've never seen before and then review it with me. I'm your host, Cara Westworth, and today I am not joined by a friend per se, but my husband, Benjamin. Thank you for having me on the show. Friend of the show and very special guest, your husband. So I've talked about you a lot on my podcast. Great. Because I want people to know that I am married to a real person and not Tom Cruise. A real person? With real emotions and real uh, reactions uh, to the overwhelming amount of Tom Cruise stuff that has happened to our household in the previous year. Uh, it's actually my birthday today. Um, oh, happy birthday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm recording it on my birthday and releasing it on my birthday because I'm very disorganized. But you say that about Tom Cruise stuff in our house, but you happen to buy me like three or four Tom Cruise presents this well, year. I won't lie. I I am an enabler. I understand that. It's it's a problem. Uh, we talk about it often in uh, our support group. Uh, people with partners who are way too unreasonably obsessed with Tom Cruise. <laughs> it's an affliction. We cry a lot. We lean on each other. But it's a good community and we're, we're really there for each other. Nice. Okay, well, we have chosen a film that you have never seen before as per the podcast premise. You didn't know anything about this movie. Yeah, like nothing. Somehow over the last like 20 years, because 2001... This was, yeah? Yep, 2001. Uh, it is directed by Cameron Crowe. It is Vanilla Sky. Yep, somehow just nothing. Literally, absolutely nothing. I so, knew nothing. Not even... I knew that Penelope Cruz was in it. That was it. Wow. I think that's probably all I knew. But it's not the kind of movie at face value I think I ever would have been interested in or pursued had I not become obsessed with Tom Cruise. So I think I probably just wrote it off at the time because... Uh, when I was sort of would have been a teenager when this one came out, Tom Cruise was not exactly like the "Hey, you got to go out and you definitely got to check out this movie," especially in like the early two thousands period. Despite there being like some awesome early two thousands movies with Tom Cruise, but it wasn't really until that sort of like Minority Report era where he started doing those really cool sci fi sort of movies that he really got on my radar again. So I think I just glossed over this one completely. Didn't really, really care for Cameron Crowe movies when I was a teenager as well. Loved films, so tried to see absolutely everything. But Cameron Crowe movies and Tom Cruise movies weren't at the top of the list, nor was a film with a boring-ass title like Vanilla Sky. Yeah, it does. Yeah, vanilla. That's always a winning... Vanilla. Winning. <laughs> no other way to describe winning it. Winning word to put in a title. Sky and Vanilla. Two words by themselves. Not that attractive. Put them together. Doesn't make it much better. No, no, it doesn't. Okay, well, having now seen it, what did you think? Uh, my initial reaction was I really liked it. I think it was really unique, which I really, really appreciated. And as far as Cameron Crowe movies go, I'd probably put that up there with the most that I've enjoyed a Cameron Crowe movie. I, th I think it was just some really, really, really interesting choices made about it. It was one of those ones where you watch it and I'm like, I don't know where you're getting all this from. I don't know who sat down and thought, yeah, this is a really, really great idea for a movie. But it wasn't until afterwards and looking it up that it's a remake of a Spanish film that was made just a few years before it. Mm. And... They kind of just remixed that and did their slightly own version uh, as well. From the looks of it, it was this Spanish film from 1997 by a director called uh, Alessandro Amenabar, probably not saying that right, um, called Open Your Eyes. And from the looks of it, it's actually a fairly honest and faithful remake. Penelope Cruz plays exactly the same role in yep. both movies, but they had this really, really open discourse and open discussion between the two directors, Cameron Crowe and Alessandro. Uh, where they sort of treated it like a cover song and they were really open and really supportive of that whole process and kind of did one that one considered to be the operatic version of the movie and one that they considered more of a punk rock version of the movie. This was supposed to be the more punk rock movie. I don't think it's punk rock at all, but no. <laughs> it's, that, that's how they described it. Okay. Wow. I did not know that. 
Uh, okay, well, personally, we, we had a little chat about this before. I think this movie, the plot, at a very base level, is kind of simple, but normally we go sort of beat by beat of the movie and discuss it all, which I think is going to be too hectic because I'm like, I, was, I write notes for every movie we watch. And normally, like, I mean, Eyes Wide Shut, which is a two and a half, two and a half, 45 minute movie, I wrote two and a half, nearly three pages of notes. I wrote five full pages of notes. No, 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 wait, I think I've gone to a six page. Hang on. Yeah, yeah, I've got five and a half pages of notes for this one. So I actually do think... Are we going to have a stab at it? I guess. I reckon we could do it. Okay. Well... How does the movie start? What is Vanilla Sky about? Kurt Russell, a more attractive man than Tom Cruise. I'm so sorry. A more attractive man than Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise sit in a room together. But you can't see Tom Cruise's face because he's got this weird prosthetic well, mask that on. That's not how it really starts. Uh, the movie generally like starts in, I think, a very cool scene where it's panning over... New York City and Tom Cruise wakes up and you immediately find out that he's rich as fuck because his TV goes down into the floor. Which, how does the logistics of that work? Because if you have a TV that goes into a floor, it's got to go the other side. So unless you've got like a below the floor, like one and a half metre stretch of just like open space to keep your TV when it's retracted, otherwise it's going into your downstairs living room. Or do you name downstairs neighbor's house? <laughs> or the downstairs house. They've just got an agreement where there's little bits cut out. They're just like, look, I'll pay some of your rent as long as my TV can come into your living room yeah. every single night. Yeah. That was weird. Uh, it was also 2001, so I feel like a flat screen TV would have been a pretty big deal. Was it 2001? I wasn't wholly aware because of the extraordinary amount of CDs they show in this movie. <laughs> uh, would you like to listen to Jeff Buckley on CD? Or I don't know the other one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of CDs, a lot of um, cool, popular music throughout yep. the movie. It was movie. definitely written and directed by a Rolling Stones writer. Oh, is that what he is? Yeah. Oh. That's what Almost Famous is, because Cameron Crowe um, uh, grew up writing for Rolling Stones from a very young age, so Almost Famous is sort of quasi, kind of semi-autobiographical. I don't know, because I watched that movie once and didn't like it. Oh, there you go. There you go. Okay, well, yeah, it opens up, he wakes up from a dream and he has this weird alarm clock thing that you obviously can record your own alarm things on and it says open your eyes which is i guess a callback to the spanish movie yep i uh, think they, they do that a fair bit in the movie uh he wakes up and he's like oh i had a nice dream i'm gonna go up and get ready for work but when he leaves the house in a porsche which changes later but he goes driving through new york city and he's like there's no one around and he drives into Times square and there's no one there like all the lights and all the signs are going and you know, it looks like Times Square, but there's just absolutely no one there. And we get some Tom Cruise running through. Immediately, straight into the Tom Cruise yeah, tropes. It's real good. And yeah, he runs around and he's like, what's happening? And then does a bit of a scream and then cuts to him waking up genuinely. So obviously that was a dream. And... So they're showing something fantastical immediately to set up the possibility of dream sequences in this movie. Yeah. I guess Laying so. the foundation. Yes. The most expensive way they could possibly do it. Closing down Times Square for, I presume, what would be impossible to do at any time. I I read about it. I can't remember now. I read it when I first watched this movie. Uh, They only had, like, a very small window and they had to just quickly do it, like, really early in the morning. And kind of like Mission Impossible Fallout when they got to film around the Arc de Triomphe. They get, like, a really, really small frame of time. They're like, this is it. you got to do it. And they had to just quickly smash it out as fast as possible. And that's cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so he wakes up. He's with the very beautiful Cameron Diaz. So, so far in the plot, we've gotten to none of the plot. Yes, I know. That's what I mean. It's going to be really hard. It's really hard. Uh, <laughs> so Cameron Diaz is Julie. He is a friend. 
with benefits, basically. Uh, you can tell pretty straight off the bat that she loves him, but he's like, oh, commitment, I'm a playboy, you can't touch me, except to fuck me now and then. Yep, he sure is a playboy. Yep. He screams playboy. Yes, he does. Uh, he's also but really... he smiles, he's doing that Tom Cruise smile, but he's doing it with that playboy yeah. wink. They kind of keep going about terrified of commitment. She makes jokes that like, well, don't pretend we're married. I never want to be married when clearly that's all she wants from him. For some reason when he leaves, so like like the dream sequence stuff kind of happens, except he has a Mustang now. I don't know if that's important. I just wondered why he had a Porsche in the first bit, but then he had a very different car. Well, that's important because like, yeah, every time they go sort of back to certain things, very, very light things change. Yeah. Like it, I think it establishes a thing immediately that the movie itself is kind of an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Where and and especially by the end of it, where you look back on it, like nothing that they present in any scene really is actually reliable uh, in terms of what actually happened. Yeah. I don't think there's any aspect of this plot where you can say, yeah, that's 100% definitely how it happened. It might have happened like that. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, he picks up his best mate Brian, who is played by Jason Lee. So double Scientology in this movie. Scientology party. I did look it up this morning though. Jason Lee left Scientology a couple of years ago. Yes, he did. And his ex-partner, one of the more proponent people that came out and did a big piece on escaping Scientology. Oh, really? Yeah. So they'd escape it together? No. Very, very different times. Their relationship broke down as a result of it. Um, and then she throws a lot of shade at Jenna Elfman in it. Says Jenna Elfman is like one of the more militant Scientologists that exists. Really? Yeah, apparently. Old Dharma from Dharma and Greg. wow. She has a birthday with me. I don't know why I know that. Also, her Greg from Dharma and Greg was in the last movie I reviewed. Really? Yeah, he was in... Eyes wide shut. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. No real connection there, but anyway. Uh, yeah, so we ascertain that Brian is his best friend, that he's writing a book yep. on Dave. Oh, yeah, it's David Ames is the name of yes. Chris's character. They nearly get hit by a truck at some point. I'm sure that's foreshadowing all the stuff that's going to happen next. Uh, and, yeah, we quickly go through and we find out that he, his dad was like a magazine mogul owned a bunch of magazines and things. Like we can safely call it like a Citizen Kane style reference because people behind Tom Cruise's back, who's now inherited the company, call him, very cleverly, Citizen Dildo. Yeah. It's not even a good pun. It's not even rhyme. <laughs> but I still think it's a good name. Citizen Dildo. Sounds good. It rolls off the tongue. Citizen Dildo. I don't know if it does. Sounds like a superhero name. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise plays Citizen Dildo. Oh, please, no. No. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, and he sort of sets up that he calls them the Seven Dwarves and has a different name for them and that he owns 51% of the company and they hate him and they want to basically get full control and kick him out because he's like a young idiot. And he sets himself up pretty quickly. Like he comes in that stupid hat and is like yeah, he, a bit of a dick. To be fair, he is a bit of a young idiot. Who's yeah, they're a bit like, of a dick. can you please tell us which colours to do in this on the next issue? Like, we're days behind. And he's like, I can't hear you. Yeah. Uh, which is really obnoxious. So like, he, he's already establishing that he's like going down that playboy path. He's not playing like a good guy Tom Cruise character. He's just kind of playing a bit of a sport brat, a bit of a dick. Yeah. He's flippant with his fuck buddy uh, at the start of it, which is perfectly fine. Um, but everything about his life is very idealistic. It's very fun. It's very silly. It's just like a big flame. It's very rock star style life. Yes. Despite him not being a rock star. You know, you don't want the Stacey Jacks situation here. No. But, you know, that he controls 51% and that is the son of a magnate. It sounds like it's, it's almost a little bit too ridiculous to be reality, but that might be the point. Yes, it might be. We don't know that yet, though. No. We don't know that yet. Uh, then it kind of suddenly changes. He is being, like, it's a little bit of voiceover talking about, well, I'm your doctor, like, not not your psychiatrist kind of thing. 
and we cuts to um, them in a meeting room kind of thing at a, in a prison. And Kurt Russell is McCabe, and he is the psychologist. Like a court psychologist, yeah. yeah. To kind of work out. so Because he keeps repeating that, like, he's only got a limited amount of time that he can sit there and talk to him. They don't have forever. Like, he's he's just, he's there, he's on the clock, he's on the beat, but he wants to help him. But you got to work with me here, Tom. Yeah. David Ames. David, yeah. Uh, And David's wearing this terrible silicone mask that makes me very uncomfortable. Like, kind of like... If you're Australian, you know EC from um, Liftoff, a children's television show in the 90s. That's who that reminds me of. It looks to me exactly like Michael Myers' mask, like the William Shatner mask. Oh, yeah. And also with Tom Cruise's hair, which is kind of really... Uh, Yeah, so they kind of set it up pretty quickly that he's murdered someone. And David's like, no, I didn't. I definitely didn't murder someone. And... That's kind of the basis they keep flashing back to them being in prison. And Michael Shannon is the prison guard. Yeah, Michael so Shannon, Kurt Russell, all the best people. Yeah, it's a really good time. Super white, but But then at his, at his house, he's having a big flamboyant party. His birthday party, yeah. His birthday party. And then uh, in that particular uh, situation, uh, Jason Lee's character introduces him to a girl that he's met recently. Oh, also, by... we saw Steven Spielberg there for some reason. Oh, and Steven Spielberg was there for a moment. He's like, yeah, bro, I'm Steven Spielberg. Give us a hug. We're best friends. <laughs> I think they were just about to film Minority Report. Oh. Um, but he meets uh, Penelope Cruz, and they're all being like quite openly flirtatious about the whole situation. because yeah, they, he's But like... they're like, immediately enamored with each other. Yeah. And everybody's talking quite openly about it. And, like, it kind of, like, is kind of presenting uh, David Ames as having a bit of both friendship and relationship uh, throwing caution to the wind. Like, he's not particularly careful about this whole thing. And he's kind of like, yeah, well, if I'm interested in her, sorry, my friend Jason Lee, I'm probably just going to go after her. Yeah. Although um, Jason Lee had only just met her, too. Yeah. So he didn't feel too guilty about yeah, yeah, yeah. snatching her from him. Um, I think part of the appeal was that she was completely not phased by this rich, famous guy. Like, she wasn't there because she wanted to, I don't know, what's the word for it? Gold digger kind of thing. She was literally there because her friend invited her, her new friend invited her, and she was kind of not at all impressed. But they genuinely do have a connection, and they genuinely do have a moment together. They, 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 They hang out, they don't sleep together, but they have a moment. And after they sort of, like, established that they might continue some sort of uh, initial courting of a relationship, he goes outside and Cameron Diaz is being all, like, fatal attraction, waiting in a car, waiting Oh, yeah, hang him. on. Um, at the party, so they kind of set up that uh, Julie, Cameron Diaz's character, is a stalker because, like, he goes to him and goes, like, oh, you got to pretend you're enamoured with me and you you find me really engaging. I know you, you have to act. Yeah. He wants to shake her off a little yeah, bit. Yeah, um, because she's turned up to the party uninvited because he's being a real dick to her. Like, he's like, I want to fuck you. I don't want to hang out with you or anything like that. And I really like the line where it's like, she's the saddest girl to ever hold a martini. Because she was. She was, like, crying and watching him flirt and, like... Being a little bit too much. Yeah, she was being too much. And... But instead of handling it like an adult, David decides to try and make her more, makes her a bit more jealous. So when he, after they have their lovely evening together and so Like he's not being particularly thoughtful about the whole situation. So they spend the evening and after the party in um, Sophia's apartment and they like, they draw each other and it's all very sweet and romantic. And there's like a really, really nice kiss, but like they, they're holding back because, you know, I don't know, it's just a thing. He actually, actually, he says that it's a thing where you hold back until passions are, like, as high as they can possibly be. Yeah, before so, you have like, sex. weird, like, player bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Like, Tom Cruise and Magnolia bullshit. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, when he leaves, Cameron Diaz, Julie is waiting out there. And, like, she's obviously been waiting all night for him to come out and, you know, kind of does a bit of a guilt trip on him. Like, I thought we were friends. Like, why are you doing this to me? So he she convinces him to get into her car and go for a drive. Like, you need to make up for me how you've been treating me really shabbily. Why so he's like, fuck it. I'll have sex with her. Let's do it. Yay. Yeah. And she very quickly reveals that she actually has really strong feelings for him and that she was sort of lying when she was saying, oh, it's, I'm okay with this being casual. And her weird thing that's like when you have when you sleep with someone, your body's making a promise, even if you your brain thinks differently. Like, yep. And she's saying, and she starts turning around and asking, what, what is happiness to you? What does yep. that mean to you? Yep. And then the single best line of the movie, I swallowed your cum, that means something. <laughs> that is the best line in the movie. <laughs> We need to say the cum more in movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you've been in me. And you've, I followed your cum. That means something. Uh, and, you know, her happiness, she describes it as about being there with him at that moment because she loves him so much. Like, he can't even come. Oh, like, he's, another CD reference where she's like, listen to my CD. And he's like, what do you think? And he can't even, like, fake a compliment for it. Like, he's just so mean to her. Um, he's not He's not a nice guy in no, this, really. No. Yeah, it really upsets her and pisses her off. And she starts spinning around New York with no regard for other traffic or anything. And basically, uh, like, he's like, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I love you. And then she drives off the edge of a bridge and crashes very dramatically, killing herself and, as it turns out, badly, badly injuring him. So his, his life literally and figuratively comes crashing down. Yes. Because when he wakes from this, he is... Uh, Quite disfigured in the face. He's had a lot of uh, facial reconstruction. Has had um, his arm reconstructed. Has got that real sort of like Phantom of the Opera uh, vibes going on. Yeah. And as far as he's concerned, this is the worst possible thing that could happen to him. He's He, he goes into like a, a meeting with uh, facial reconstruction people who basically tell him that they can't really... They've done everything they can. They've done everything they can. They're they not can. willing to experiment. Like they're not clown doctors or something they said uh yeah like cowboy doctors cowboy doctors we're not, yeah. we're not a bunch of cowboys so yeah and he's although like because this is the thing the movie i'm like so facial difference is like a real thing like using facial differences whether it's scars or birthmarks or like birth defects or anything as like a plot device in movies is kind of shitty so like how many movies have had the villain has a facial difference that they kind of that's how you know he's a villain. Like even in Han Solo, they ended up putting, making the actor have like bad scar scarring on his face, and like that's how you know he's a villain because he's got scars. And he looks he looks a bit scary. So yeah, when I first saw his face like that, I was like, oh, what are they gonna do with this? But in that scene, he kind of says, this isn't about vanity. This is about he has like crippling migraines, and as a migraine sufferer. I would do anything if I had crippling migraines like he was having to get rid of them. I hands down don't believe that though. I think for him, it was vanity. It's entirely vanity. Yeah. Like, the migraine's absolutely sure, but, like, everything that they've established in the opening scenes is this person that isn't thinking too hard about anything other than living his lifestyle. That he's got this very rock star, very sort of pop culture-influenced life Mm. that this crash and what she did to him has taken all of that away. Because if he's in a situation where he can't even throw all the money he has to fix himself, he's not got what he has. Money just can't fix everything. So if he can't control it with his money... And he doesn't have his social status anymore, and he doesn't have his easy connections and his Tom Cruise-ish good looks. Then he's, in his mind, he's probably lost it all. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I guess yeah, it is all about his vanity, but I guess he's pretending it isn't because 
he doesn't want to seem like it is just about his looks and he's like the vainest bastard alive uh, in front of the doctors. But yeah, definitely, you're right. Well, after sort of taking some time for himself, he ends up re-emerging and without his mask, uh, approaching Penelope Cruz's character, uh, Sophia. Oh um, yeah, because um, the doctors are like, well, we don't, we can't fix your face, but we have this special mask that, and they try and pass it off as like, it's going to protect your face, it helps regenerate tissue, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, great. Because I, I remember that I thought it was a fucking mask. And made jokes, uh, series of jokes. Every day I Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Series of jokes about being a Halloween mask, which, you know, does It is. It does look like a Halloween mask. <laughs> the Halloween mask. Terrible. Uh, yeah. So, like, there's a couple of scenes that they set up where he's sort of followed Sophia around, um, but never makes contact. But he finally does. He goes to a dance studio because she's a ballet dancer. And, um, yeah, he finally approaches her and she agrees to meet up with him. Like, she's like, I, I tried to see you, but your people wouldn't let me, which I think came from him because he's like, oh, I, I didn't want, I didn't even want to see myself. So, you know, of course, I didn't want you to see me either. Um, and she agrees to meet up with him and he's pretty stoked. And they meet up at a nightclub for some reason, which is a really odd choice, I thought. Yeah, a little bit weird. Yeah. And, um, Jason Lee is brought along. She brings him along as like a chaperone because obviously like it's a lot. Like they had one wonderful evening together and then he's gone through a horrible situation, hasn't seen him in months and months. And then all of a sudden he's like, let's try again. Let's start again. But obviously he's a different person to who she met. You know, he keeps starting fights with them. He's, oh, he's wearing the mask, which freaks him out a lot. And then he gets really drunk and starts fights. Keeps calling the bartender bitch, which is real cool and real 2001 of him. So he makes a bit of a dick of himself, gets way too drunk, kind of ruins the evening and passes out in the middle of the street with the mask not too far, far away. Yeah. Then he wakes up in the morning and Sophia is there and she's being thoughtful and she's helping him and they kind of start actually making a stronger connection after that and the film kind of gets a little bit romantic for a bit and actually a little bit yeah. sort of positive and they spend some time together they she they share, fixes, share a meaningful connection she fixes him completely by you know just being the woman in a movie whose sole purpose is to make the uh, boy better yeah and thankfully at the same time the doctors end up um figuring out figuring out how to just fix him and they they have this beautiful totally idealistic ridiculous ghost style scene where it, where she slowly takes the mask off his face and he's just Gorgeous Tom Cruise again. Yeah, not just even one scar left. Not like, one single scar left. Like, wow. And it all just it all just works out. And then then he wakes up one morning and he's like, Yeah, Sophia. Penelope Cruz, Sophia, I love you so much. And then, oh my god, it's Cameron Diaz. It's not Penelope Cruz anymore, it's Cameron Diaz. What the fuck? Where's where's Sophia? And she's like, I'm Sophia. And you're like, You're not Sophia. Yeah, you're well, Cameron well, Diaz. So he wakes up from a dream where he goes to the bathroom to have a drink and then turns on the light and he's faces back to um, being disfigured and freaks out and goes back to, you know, screaming and then Sophia looks at him and starts screaming and then he wakes up, like another dream where he immediately wakes up and relives that same thing. And he goes and looks and then his face is fine. He's like, oh, phew. But when he goes back to bed, it's not Sophia who comes and hugs him. It is Julie. And obviously, like you figure out pretty quickly, he's going crazy. It is Sophia, but all he can see is Julie and he freaks out. So goes into a very goes very dark very quickly. He like ties her up. He's like, "You set this all up. It was the Seven Dwarves like trying to get control of the company. Where, whose body was that? That was found in the car. Blah, blah blah." So he immediately thinks like it's all set up. She's done something with Sophia somehow, and it's all just a big elaborate I don't know, ploy to get the company from him and to fuck him over. Um, very elaborate. Yes, he goes. He then you know immediately cuts to him getting mugshots because. 
he beat the shit out of her and they're like, you beat up Sophia. Like, um, she's not going to press charges. Like, his lawyer, who is Peter Pettigrew, which is a terrifying choice. Uh, can't say anything about Peter Pettigrew and that actor. And, yeah, he's like, she's not going to press charges, but you need to see what you did to her to understand. Like, I, I need you to see this, even though I fixed it all up. And But he can still only see Julie's face, but he bashed the shit out of her. His friend Brian comes and picks him up and they have a bit of a fist fight and... It's like, if you need to hit someone, don't hit girls, hit me. Uh, or maybe just don't hit anyone, really. Yeah, he, he just can't get out of his head that it was Julie trying to fuck him over. It wasn't Sophia, and he's now lost everything because he's going crazy. So that leads into the next part of the film, in which things start becoming unclear, and things keep changing, and that concept of that unreliable narrator starts getting more and more compounded. And eventually he follows the clues and eventually figures out that uh, he's signed a contract somewhere, that he's done something. This is what uh, his, with the Kurt Russell character, is helping him find out. And they find this thing called, uh, what's what's the company called? L-E. E-L, Extended Life. No, L-E. Life Extended? Yeah, Life Extended. So there's a thing that happens in the movie a few times. Um, like when he, the first shot, scene where he's in the prison with McCabe the prison guard's watching TV and you can see and it's actually an ad like it's not an ad it's like talking about this cryogenic company that freezes you like the whole Disney kind of thing we've always talked about and they keep referring to this dog who Benny the dog I think was yeah Benny the dog who was found who went missing very good boy it was very good but he was found frozen and they actually managed to bring him back to life and how like when he's on at one point they show him on Conan and they're like, are you sure he's not? Are you sure he's not still frozen? He's not reacting. Like, yeah, he just kind of lost his pep. Like, he's not the obviously not the same animal he was before he got frozen, um, which is setting things up for later, I guess. And so, yeah, that's a recurring theme. They keep talking about cryogenically freezing yourself. So there's a prison scene, and McCabe is kind of like, I'm done with you. I've tried helping you. I see you like a son, but you're just not helping. You're not giving me anything. You won't take off that mask. So I'm leaving. And after he leaves, David looks at the TV, and it's playing that thing again. And something triggers in his mind and he's like, come back, come back, come back. And they end up taking him to life expectancy and which answers the question at one point, McCabe's like, you keep, apparently you keep saying Ellie in your sleep. Who is Ellie? Like, we need to know who she is to unfold this mystery. And it turns out Ellie is not a person. It is the company. Life extended. Welcome to L.E. Life extended. Uh, Yeah. So pretty quickly we realise that and things are coming together because we like wait he's he knows where he's been here before he like he recognizes different people he recognizes names and before There's saucy they... redheads everywhere <laughs> yes there are um yeah so they go through a meeting like it's his first time there but yeah we work out and mccabe's like this is all craziness i can't believe did you sign a contract with these guys they're maniacs and they watch end up watching a video oh there's what's it called lucid dream lucid dream so they so basically you can get a package in this particular place which is becoming very apparent that he must have done at some point in which he has signed himself over to be cryogenically frozen but when you sign yourself up for being cryogenically frozen there is an upgrade package you can get fries with that and your fries with that is that you can have a life in your deep sleep that is your ideal life yes so after a kind of expository scene and what we eventually realize after Kurt Russell is like did you sign a contract with these people did you sign a contract with these people we realize with the help of a character played by Noah Taylor yeah who's who popped up a tech couple support times. 
a few times, like you see him in a bar and like they have a confrontation where he's like, you know, you're God. Why aren't you, you can control all this, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of for a second does control everyone there. But he's like, you're crazy. I'm not gay. Go away from me, which is a terrible 2001 thing. And what we realize is that Tom Cruise is definitely in a dream and he is definitely cryogenically frozen. Yes. And has been for almost 150 years. Yeah. So there's like a big scene where they, uh, you know, he runs away he goes into the lobby, there's no one there, and then the lift opens and Noah Taylor is standing there and is like, hi, you finally figured it out, have you? And like, so he's been cryogenically frozen for 150 years and has been living this lucid dream this whole time, which everything starts falling into place. And they start going up in this lift in this endlessly tall building and, you know, he kind of explains everything and basically... Well, basically, lucid dream was fucking out. There's yeah. there a bug. It was mucking up and it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, which was give you this idealistic life it was turning into a nightmare for him yes and the tech support character who comes and meets him in this very sort of weird ethereal like manner explains that they're fixing this don't worry we're gonna we're gonna backtrack all of this and you're gonna be back in this dream and do it but then he explains that we've actually watched both a real world part of tom cruise's uh, D- david Ames' life and then the dream part of david Ames' life and that point was when he passed out on the gutter outside the nightclub yeah which is why suddenly all the imagery went from being like dark and sad and pathetic and then when she comes and's like well this is a pathetic ploy for a sympathy and picks him up off the gutter like Everything is beautiful and, like, yeah. the all the lighting changes and that's when everything... So he lived after that point, but when he he then killed himself um, after passing out on the gutter that day and his life presumably just going down the drain... Yeah. Um, he well, did, no, he, like, he, he, tried, like, he to... tries... Maintains control of the company through his lawyer, Peter Pettigrew, his lawyer, helps him maintain control. And, he, you know, they show him actually going to meetings via video link and stuff like that and... But he never got over Sophia and he never could get over everything that's happened. So he ends up taking pills and dying and they freeze him. And that's when the lucid dream starts. And that's pretty much the end. He sort of like, oh, he gets the choice at the end to... Yeah, so he's got the choice. Like he has to take a literal leap of faith. Does he want to... They can reset everything and like you can go back to living... Oh, no, I'm getting teary just thinking about it. Yeah, because you cried and then we watched the alternate ending and he cried again within like the t- same 20 minute period. <laughs> Oh, no. It really got me this time. The first time I watched it, I'm like, I don't know what I just watched, hey. (laughs) He does what an in-dream representation of waking up from this cryogenic sleep is, which is jump off a cliff. uh, Sorry, jump off a building. And he's afraid of heights, so he has to confront that and wake up. And the film ends with him, someone saying, open your eyes. this beautiful moment where Paul McCabe realizes he's not real. Like, he's like, he's just his father figure. Like, as a father figure, you have to make up for, for your dad not being there and how he died. And McCabe's like, what the fuck? But I have two daughters. And like, what's their names? He's like, ah, oh, fuck, I don't know. And Jason Lee turns up. And then there's a really beautiful scene with Sophia where, oh, my God. You are crying a lot right now. <laughs> it's a really beautiful scene that I'm not going to talk about because I'll cry more. <laughs> <laughs> but the bit where he jumps and goes to run over and, like, McCabe's screaming, don't, don't do it, is also my favorite gif when I use Instagram stories. Great. <laughs> Which is him, like, turning around and looking around and, yeah, he jumps off and then he wakes up and he's a close-up of his eye and he just says, open your eyes, which... And she, when they're having their... Oh, my God, I can't even spit this out. When they're talking, she says, you should live your life. Don't go back into the dream. I'll come find you. And so when the voice sounds like hers... Stop looking at me like that! (laughs) So, okay, my first thing to note is that's the end of the movie. 
And if you just look to that rambling, incoherent amount of shit we just talked about, it sounds like when someone describes a dream to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure on reflection that that sounds like a terrible movie. That sounds absolutely incoherent and really horrible, completely random. It sounds like a dream movie. So my first question is, do you think that's what happened in the movie? That their explanation of Tom Cruise living a life, having some horrible things happening, signing up to this contract, committing suicide, and then the rest of the story being his lucid dreams, but that falling apart. Is that what happened in Vanilla Sky? I'm inclined to say yes. But then, so Cameron Crowe talks about the five different interpretations of the ending, how tech support is telling the truth. 150 years have passed since Ames killed himself and subsequent events had it form a lucid dream. I'm inclined to go with that because I usually just go with whatever go with the flow kind of person. Uh, the other interpretations are the entire film is a dream evidenced by a sticker on his car that reads 2.30.01, which is February 30th, does not occur in the Gregorian calendar. Don't know if that's a strong enough so, thing. I'm inclined to think that the whole thing is a dream. Yeah? Yeah, for a couple of reasons. Or like I mean, a okay. dream that happens after the crash while he's in a coma. Is that I think what? the whole thing is a dream-like state of affairs because like, it's just a little bit too idealistic and a little bit too set up at the start. Like, his life is ridiculous. That's not a reasonable, normal life. But that is, that's how life people live, though. Sure. But when Cameron Diaz rocks up in that car and takes him, it takes him to the car and starts saying things to him, I realise that she's supposed to be, like, this unhinged character that isn't altogether there and is going to say some pretty batshit stuff. But the things that she is saying aren't real things that human beings would say. Like, the way that sounded to me is, like, for example, if Tom Cruise's... If David Amos was feeling guilty about the way that he was discarding a particular person, Mm. those are kind of the things that a narcissistic man would feel like a woman would say to him if if he felt like she was obsessed with him. Yep. Where she says, (laughs) (laughs) I swallowed your cum. That means something. I like when right she's now, saying that, that does not. <laughs> she's saying that, like, what does happiness mean to you? Like, drilling him about his like morality and stuff, and then citing, no, if I can't have this person, we're both going to die. Yeah, I get the fatal attraction side of things that that is like a conceivable possible reality, but to me, that screams much more a narcissist concept of how other people perceive them than an actual plot point happening. So, in that case, if it's all a dream, what's the base? Whose dream is it? Is it David Ames's dream? I don't think they're choosing to define... I don't think Cameron Crowe wants to define it in any capacity. I think he wants to keep that as open and loose ended. Yeah, but what, uh, do, what do you think? I, I just think it's all meant to be in more of a dreamlike state, that it's supposed to be undefined, that it's not supposed to be this, like, linear narrative that's got this very clear explanation of what actually happened. I just think everything in the movie is re- meant to represent uh, the nature of what dreams are like and the nature of how your subconscious takes things. Specifically in this movie takes influences from pop culture and forms them into possible narratives for yourself. This movie is undeniably completely, like, influenced by Cameron Crowe's version of pop culture. Like, it's so full of, like, that sort of, like, Rolling Stones music and film uh, 90s mentality. Yeah. And obviously that's what happens at the end as well. Like, it's revealed that, like, once once it's very clearly in that sort of dreamlike state, there's all these things that happen in the film that are inspired by pop culture things that the David Bob Amos Dylan is really cover. into. Yeah. For example, the Bob Dylan cover. So there was the, uh, I can't remember what the actual album is, but it, one of the actual shots of uh, Sophia and David Amos's uh, characters walking down the street is actually the cover recreated from a Bob Dylan song. 
Yeah. Um, there was a really, really fun note uh, on it that Cameron Crowe said that Bob Dylan went and watched the movie and afterwards he talked to Cameron Crowe and says, so I was watching the scene and I'm like, that looks so familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't until the end of the movie that Bob Dylan's like, oh, it's my album. <laughs> Gotcha, Bob. <laughs> Eat shit. <laughs> Surprise. But like, there's also sort of like, uh, the music was really jarring in the movie, right? So I, I love the concept of like how all the music, uh, especially the songs that we use, didn't really like feel super appropriate, appropriate, but they felt like someone's music taste rather than songs that were yeah. suitable for particular scenes. I like how you liked, you, know, you were super into all the songs and like, I have not heard any of these songs before <laughs> <laughs> my life. <laughs> But then they actually, and forgive me, because I can't remember this was from the alternate ending we ended up watching, or the real ending, and FYI, the alternate ending is pretty much the same ending as the normal ending. It's just got a couple of different bits. Yep. But there was a bit in one of the endings that we were watching where they're in, like, an elevator and Tom Cruise is trying to figure everything out and this song comes on and it sounds like a soundtrack song happening over the top. But then he's just like, where is that music coming from? So, like, as far as they were treating it in the film, it was diegetic music. Like, yep. it was the soundtrack was actually happening in the scene. Yeah. So not only is this a dream, Tom Cruise's character is godlike creating his dream to act like a movie. And then you get into some really silly meta shit. Well, yeah, like when the original ending, it's like Beach Boy starts playing and they kind of don't reference it. But in the alternate ending where they actually, before he runs down to the lobby, he's in the bathroom and McCabe is like yelling at him. Then the Beach Boy starts playing really loudly and... David's like, what the fuck is that music? Can you hear it? And Dipika's like, there's no music. What are you talking about? So, yeah. I kind of I love that more. Like, like it kind of sets it up to, to say that the lucid dream or whatever the version of, whether it's like an actual thing, whether lucid dream is real in the movie or not, or whether all the dreams are lucid dreams to some capacity, like that your subconscious directs a dream like a movie, that it, that it, that it creates a soundtrack for it and it takes those, those, those idealistic natures for it and takes all the things that you get from pop culture and kind of just mashes them together into this very well-directed uh, scene rather than just being this subconscious thing working in random ways. Yeah. Like I would like to think that when I have nightmares or dreams, I'm sometimes I'm just directing the best fucking movie anyone's ever made. Like yeah. some, you wake up from a movie, you're like, God damn, that would have made a good movie. <laughs> I would be really into that horrible nightmare horror movie if it De- was made. Definitely any of your dreams would be a brilliantly directed film, man. There you go. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Did you like the alternate ending more or less? Or do you think it... I think I like the alternate ending more just because they had that extra meta I... elements to it, which I think are really fun. And I, I, I don't believe this movie needs like a defined, this is what happened. Like, all the stuff, especially with uh, L.E., was so over the top and so ridiculous. Like, you've got this Tilda Swinton character that is almost being, like, aggressively intimidating to force someone, to upsell her product. Yeah. Like, that's it's absurd. It's ridiculous. And I realise that that was in the dream at the time, but I still feel like that's supposed to be representative of what, what L.E. was supposed to be doing. Yeah. And there's all these weird, like, Christian uh, connotations to it as well, where, like, okay, so David Armis is the son of a very important person who wrote the book, right? He was in his 30s or whatever. He dies, is in their words, resurrected. He's made a deal in terms of like some bad sort of afterlife. There's, I don't know, just lots of weird, but I don't think it actually has any specific meaning. I think Cameron Crowe has just put a lot of things into this thing and said, look, we're going to make this ethereal and weird and kind of non-answery and we're just going to let people do what they want with it because a dream isn't defined. A dream doesn't have very set reasons for it all. It's just a little bit ethereal and a little bit weird. So have fun with that. So you liked it? I liked it. Yeah. I, 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 I thought I would, you would. Yeah. I, I, um, 
some of the sort of like pop culture influences that Cameron Crowe has isn't like exactly my bag. Uh, it's, it was very 2001. As yeah, well. he's like Cameron Crowe is who he is. Like he comes from that massive Rolling Stone background from this very sort of like front and glossy, uh, not that alternative. It's very mainstream rock and roll sort of yeah. sort of mentality. It's kind of like. You know, you walk around Tom Cruise's apartment uh, at the start of it and he's got lots of, like, really nice guitars put up as, like, in, like, cabinets and sort of yeah. stuff. Or, like, the smash guitar of, was it Pete Townsend's? Uh, mm, probably. Guitar in, yeah. in the wall. Like, stuff that, like, dudes in their 40s... 40-year-old def- dads. ...definitely yeah. would have, like, behind a glass cabinet if they had a lot of money. Yeah. It's it's a little bit of, like, not as rock and roll as I think maybe they think they, they think it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Um, considering I don't... I mean, I haven't gotten to Jerry Maguire yet. I did not like Jerry Maguire. So when I got into this movie, I was like, man, I'm going to not like this movie because Jerry Maguire bores the shit out of me. And the first, I don't know, third of the movie, I was kind of feeling like with his like courting of Sophia. It's like, I really don't care about some rich dude courting, like his manic pixie dream girl kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but then that changed very quickly and it became nothing like Jerry Maguire, even in the slightest. I got like how it's described as kind of like a science fiction psychological thingo but it's kind of not at the same time it's yeah it's a weird blending of genres yeah and i I like that it's not super defined and i like that tom cruise is playing i i think i've said this before like i always like tom cruise better when he's not playing a likable person i think he's better at playing unlikable people than he is playing likable people i feel like in this in magnolia in the color of money in rain man where he's kind of a prick in all those movies collateral where he's actually kind of scary or kind of a prick or kind of like yeah. a little bit over overbearing in the way that he presents himself i think he's a lot stronger stronger for that yeah i think a lot of that comes from his 20 years of uh scientology training probably or 30 years of scientology training because that's what it is it's like this self-help stuff so they they they, they train people to how to interact with people on a very sort of like leadership basis and i think when he's able to channel those successful and successful aspects of his relationship into his acting roles, he just nails it because he can actually be a little bit terrifying and a little bit of shit. Yeah, I think so. I think you are absolutely correct. Um, yeah, I do think scary Tom Cruise or bit of a bastard Tom Cruise is the better Tom Cruise uh, in his movies, except for Ethan Hunt, who was the greatest character <laughs> of all time. An angel, and we'll hear nothing bad about him. <laughs> yeah, so I guess we've, we've gone through everything. Uh, obviously... We both really, we both really enjoyed it more than we probably expected to. I feel like the second viewing made all the difference because the first time I watched it, I was like, I watched it by myself. You'd already gone to bed, and I was I sat up. I'm like, I don't know what just happened. And I watched the alternate ending, which kind of brought it together to me. But watching it a second time, yeah, it all yeah, made sense. I feel- and I could see I, it was f- kind of fun. Like there were different weird sounds. Like there was a weird sound. I can't remember what it was when she bent down to pick him up off the off the street. And I'm like, oh, that's sounding when the split happens. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there's watching it the second time it made a lot more sense, which is why I got so much more emotional watching it the second time around. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I feel like the movie would really, really reward uh, a second viewing, especially because, like, it's got that, like, they say the words, like, revolution in the movie a lot. They say the word, the, the number nine appears a lot in the movie. So, it's like, these, like, really clear references to things like uh, the Beatles, uh, you know, number nine, number nine, number nine. And what sort of struck me is more so that, sort of that sort of, like, Paul is dead conspiracy stuff. Yeah. Like, it had that sort of, like, feeling of... Because it's got that conspiratorial side of it, and it's being sort of influenced by that really sort of mainstream rock and roll uh, pop culture absolutely everywhere, from 
Monet paintings to modern music to and what I would argue to be that really Paul is dead style Beatles stuff where there was that uh, conspiracy rumor that Paul McCartney had actually died at some point and been replaced with a perfect lookalike and that through all the Beatles albums and cover imagery they were inserting clues uh, to prove that. I didn't know that that was a thing. I knew I know the Avril Lavigne version of that, but I did not know there was a. <laughs> And I feel like it, it, this movie almost knowingly had a lot of elements that were trying to lean on that sort of feeling. Yeah. You know, whether the Beatles ended up playing up to that at some point or not, I'm not too sure. But I feel like for someone like Cameron Crowe, he would look at that and be like, that's really fun. I really like the conspiracy with the dream-like state of this this movie concept, this movie that we saw, and sort of combining those elements uh, in good ways would be awesome. Um, and then we forgot about the Monet thing. Like, all the skies after that particular point yeah. start resembling Monet paintings, so, yeah, which is a, hence the, the, the reference of Vanilla Sky. Yeah, so, because the painting's not called Vanilla Sky, it's called something else. No, it's Very good. French, but it's, um, it's he called describes the scene it. scene at Argenteuil. I can't say it right. But he describes it as Vanilla Sky, and he's his mum's favourite painting by Monet, who Monet is one of my favourite artists. So. Oh, yeah. But no, I, I think at the end of the day, it, it would re- reward extra viewings, and even just sort of like reading about a few things in terms of how much they just inserted in the background and scenes, and how much fun that they're having with it. Uh, the more I read about that, the more it tells me that I don't think that they had a definitive linear narrative in mind for this thing. I think they wanted to present an entire movie that presented itself as a dreamlike, both the positives and negatives of, of, of a dreamlike nightmare or normal dream. Mm. But it's still got this backbone of, look, there is there is a linear narrative there if you want it to be. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess before we get to the point where we have to split this off into two parts, we should rate the movie. Uh, have you thought about what you're going to rate it as? Um, yes. Okay. I... I'll go first. Sure. In case you want to steal mine. Because uh, I actually thought about this in advance for once in my life. I, I find it really hard to rate movies because there's so many great movies and I don't want to rate them all too highly. Um, I'll probably give this movie oh, three and a half or four. I didn't think about my actual rating. I just thought about my rating system. Upon second viewing, I think I'll give it a four because um, it made a huge difference watching it the second time. And my rating system is going to be four meaningful swallows of cum. That was five. mine. You can't <laughs> steal that. Now I've got to think of something else. I even down to the words. They're going to be meaningful ones too. <laughs> Well, look, I'm going to give it four Michael Shannons out of five because he's a gorgeous man. He looks very young in this. And, oh, Kurt Russell and Michael Shannon in the one room, too much sexy to handle. But all three of them. I'm like, oh. Uh, Tom Cruise is all right. Michael Shannon and Kurt Russell, Cara. (laughs) I understand you're really into Tom Cruise because we're in a room that currently has more photos of Tom Cruise than it has of me. (laughs) But Michael Shannon. Okay. That's nice. So what, what number did you give it? Four. I'll four. give it four out of five. Yeah. I really like it. The more I think, it, I, I woke up this morning and I, I think I like the movie more. It's, yeah. it's. I know, it's one of those movies, like, I think about movies a lot, but I thought about this movie a lot the first time I watched it. But I don't want to think about it because I'm already getting teary again thinking about that stupid ending with the stupid meaning and, oh. I think, I think, oh, the, I think, the, I think the more, yeah, the more, t- more time that goes on, I think the more I'll, I'll probably like this movie, but I'm, I'm not interested in this perfect structure of a movie or this perfect story that needs to be yeah. told. I kind of like the idea of just, Something like those sort of like David Lynchian dreamlike sequences or the dreamlike sequences of the leftovers. Yeah. It just being like uh, a more of like a subconscious representation of just a narcissistic idiot who had his life completely come crashing around, uh, crashing down around him, and not really figuring out how to fix that other than to escape into escapism. Yeah, 
I just realized we forgot one of my other favorite lines in this movie, which I thought was really sweet, which was, I'll tell you about it in another life when we're both cats. I thought that was really cute and I want to use that in real life. Did you Have you read about that? No. Oh, okay. So apparently, um, I was reading this morning that uh, apparently Penelope Cruz said that to uh, Cameron Crowe. Yeah. And that they thought that was cute, so they ended up... It is cute. It's a really cute saying. I wonder if it's like... Because a... it was kind of random. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they use that and he says that at the end before he jumps off the building, which is really sweet. Oh, and also in the alternate ending, it sounded like Cameron Diaz's voice. It was. So it was. I wonder why they... But also it wasn't Sophia's voice in the other one, apparently. It's a completely different actress. Yeah, but I think it was meant to sound like hers, wasn't it? It was meant to be ambiguous enough that we were like, was that Sophia? Did she wake him up? Anyway. Do you think he woke up 150 years into the future? Yes, I, I believe exactly what the movie told me to believe. They're like, ah, <laughs> oh, he's waking up and Sophie's going to find him. And they're both cats. Wonderful. Uh, it's Minority Report. Uh, actually, that that's in the past, wouldn't it be? No, no. He, Minority Report is 2050-something. Oh, okay. Well, that's 150 that years in the future. It needs to be 150 years in the future. I wonder if he met Walt Disney. <laughs> I hope so. Or just Walt Disney's so. head. He's got <laughs> spider legs. <laughs> I hope so. Okay, well, we'll leave it there because we're getting pretty long, uh, long in the tooth. Uh, we're going to do what we'll call a mini-sode, but probably won't be, which will be a different sort of style than I usually do for my mini-sodes. So look forward to that next week. In the meantime, Benjamin, if people want to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Um, you can find me at uh, Ben Jungles on Twitter or Toontown Express on Instagram. All I post is board games and dogs and wife of the show, Kara Westworth. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for joining me on my birthday. I'm going to go read my Anatomy of Tom Cruise book while listening to my Top Gun vinyl soundtrack because they're the presents that you bought me, Benjamin. (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday. Thank you, babe. Uh, Yeah, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take my breath away.